So today, uh, we've been in a series called What About 2.0, where we've just been responding to the whatabouts of faith, and we ended the first one like this, and so we thought, I don't wanna just be a talking head that says things at you. I wanna hear from you. I wanna know what you're thinking, what your questions are. Um, and so today, I'm just gonna respond to questions. We're, we've got one we're gonna start with that got sent in, and then we'll take uh, one from the room, one from online, and we'll do that for the next seven or eight hours until we all pass out. <laughs> Sound good? Yeah, awesome. but the bar opens in about an hour and they serve food, so <laughs> should be in good shape. If you want some chicken fingers, stick around. <clears throat> um, okay, so first of all, thank you again for taking, giving a 2.0 version of the series because it's been amazing, great to get you to give us some context for progressive views on some of, some of the stuff uh, that we've all grown up with and have questions about. So what I wanted to start with was, um, what for you has been the most surprising uh, the thing that, that garnered the most surprising reaction, be it something you thought was gonna, people were going to lose their minds and it was crickets about or something that you didn't think would be that big a deal that people just really responded to, what was the biggest surprise in the this, in this series? I think, honestly, honestly, the biggest surprise is that we advertised the topics and people still came. <laughs> honestly, like when you put up, like this Sunday, we're going to talk about Satan. And people showed up. And then it's like, no, we're going to do demons. And then people showed up, and so I was like, well, let's just up the ante. We're going to talk about tithing. And people showed up. Um, That's a great one. Right? So for me, the, the thing that always surprises me about our community, and I, I guess I need to stop being surprised, it's the willingness to always go there, um, to push farther, to ask more questions, to be inquisitive and open. Um, I, whenever I have a guest speaker come and give a sermon, I always tell them, this is the best group of people you will ever give a sermon in front of, online or in person. It's, it's the best group of people because they're super interested, right? Uh, because in, in our space, like, none, I'm guessing none of you are here today because you're afraid of going to hell if you don't show up at church, <laughs> right? Um, so in lots of churches, you, you have like some people who want to be there and everybody else who's just trying to avoid a bad situation. Um, you all have a choice. You picked this over brunch. That's awesome. And so getting up to give a sermon in front of this community, with this community, um, is always, uh, yeah. Everywhere else I go, I'm like, the bar is set so high, there's no way you're going to be able to beat it. Um, so yeah, I'm just, but I'm continually surprised at the willingness to engage in really awkward, interesting mm. topics and, and to see where it goes. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Um, I think we're all, uh, Monday morning, we all log on to see how the world responded to whatever your newest. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, well, here's a great question that uh, was sent in beforehand. Uh, I will read them in their entirety. Uh, uh, some of us were talking recently about how we miss some of the traditional parts of church, uh, like the Christian calendar and communion. We felt like Holy Week and Easter were a little flat in that those weeks were just kind of went uh, by without an acknowledgement. Um, a lot of acknowledgement. We're excited about Advent. I guess the question is, does Grace Point see the value in tradition? And what are we doing to try and incorporate traditions that feel important to a lot of people, even if they mean different things now? Yeah, that's great. Um, really good question. Uh, it, it, and anytime somebody asks, what does Grace Point think? My first statement is, I'm not sure you'll have to ask them. Because I'm sure we all don't think the same thing on everything. Um, you know, we, last year we practiced Advent, and there were lots of people who were like, what are, what are we doing with candles? I don't understand what's happening with candles. So it was a new experience. Um, it, it definitely, there's a different relationship from the progressive lens with the Christian calendar, although I, I do think it matters in a sense, right? It, it connects us to rhythms. 
Um, we're, we're actually toying with the idea of following the lectionary some next year. How many of you know what the lectionary is? And if you don't, it's essentially, there, it's a cycle of texts that in lots of more mainline churches, they follow, you know, it's a three-year cycle, but they follow every week. And so there's readings for every week. And so with Advent, we're going to follow those readings. Um, and probably up through Lent, we're going to follow those readings um, as a way of feeling some sort of sense that we're connected to. We are still regardless of what somebody tells you on the internet about you as a Christian, uh, you're still one if you want to be. Now, you don't have to be. There's no special value if that word is icky to you and you don't want to use it. That's okay. Um, but if, you, if, if the Christian language and that, that sense of identity still matters to you, regardless of what anybody says about you, about what you believe, about any of that stuff, uh, you're still one because nobody gets to tell you who you are. Um, and so... There is value to me to feel connected to some larger thing called the Christian tradition. And so, um, yeah, and you know, we, we, were, we, we decided we're going to do communion every first Sunday, and we were trying to navigate it. We did it a couple months ago with people moving around everywhere, and that was kind of difficult. Um, and then we were, try, we were thinking about going back to the little prepackaged elements because COVID had you know, picked up a little bit, and then we realized we were out, so we didn't do it the 1st of August. Um, but communion is something that we value. It is something we'll, we'll be doing. We're doing baptisms in a, you know, next month. And so, yeah, I think um, being connected to that is important, and it's great to know uh, that there are folks in our community who are like, yeah, we were, we we're interested in, because it's sort of like reclaiming. Right, it's, we've had a weird relationship with all this. Some people say we're not a part of the family anymore, but we're, we're still coming for Christmas, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, for me, all of it, the, even using the word Christian to me, um, it doesn't feel like, gosh, this is something I must do because Jesus was a Christian, wasn't. But it is something that I feel like if I let, if I let all this go, if we, if we just let the Bible go and we let the language go and we just take our hands off of it, then it gives it, gives it to the sole possession of a group of people who are using it to hurt a lot of people. Uh, and so I want to reclaim, reimagine, reframe, reinterpret, tr- interpret, and then be able to give it back to our community, hopefully in ways that are healing and not harmful. Um, and so that's kind of the work. Should we take one from the room? Yeah, you might have a question. I'll restate it for you, so the online community. Really? <laughs> it's your first week here. <laughs> Can I say that? Uh, welcome. Oh, right good. Here. Wow, you, it's like the splash section at SeaWorld, too. Like, <laughs> you're right there. That's awesome. Um, well, I we, we have actually... Uh, it, it, it looks as though we have some subversive members who are putting questions in the online chat also. Who are okay. Here, okay. Who are here in the room. <clears throat> but, uh, okay, so here's one. Um, how do you think the idea of calling or God directing a person's life uh, or decisions, what do you think about that idea? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really deeply uncomfortable with the God told me language because people have used that and for stuff I know for a fact God didn't tell them. Like God will never tell you to bully other people. God will never tell you to dehumanize someone else. I do think there's something profound and beautiful about having a sense, um, you know, the great writer Frederick Buechner, who meant so much to me and so many others, passed away, I think, just last week. He has this great quote that I'm not going to get completely right, but sort of like, the place God calls you to is the place where your joy and the world's hunger meet. 
Um, and so, look, I, I don't think God has planned anything for your life um, as far as the details. I don't think, um, my, my wife and I often joked, like this idea that out of, out of seven, eight billion people on the planet, there's only one right person for you. My God, the pressure. <laughs> right? Like, are you kidding me? Um, so this idea that, well, God's picked it all out and it's all been preordained, I don't believe. I, I think you, you, are, you have agency and you get to make your choices. But I do think there's something beautiful about being awakened to something inside of you that's drawn to something, um, that, that it's a passion, a gifting, whatever language you want to use for it. And then you take that and you use it to make the world a better place. And it's triggering for some people, and I get that and respect that. For me, the idea that this is what I'm called to do with my life, um, I often joke and say, I don't know what else I would do. Because when I started out, you were being trained for ministry from the time you were like 15. And so your entire life is about being prepared for ministry. Like, I don't know what else I could do. I could try stand-up comedy, but that seems like it probably is a hard field to get into. Um, and so, but I feel deeply at home in this. this. I can't imagine what else I would have given my life to that would have brought me this much joy and fulfillment and, and also shortened my lifespan probably uh, a little bit. Um, so I think calling is beautiful language, but like most language, if we try to literalize it and freeze it in concrete, it can become problematic because we can begin to believe, wow, I got a job offer and it's this, but I have this other opportunity and it's this, and if I don't get this right, then I'm out of God's will forever. No, I, I think God's will, I think of God's will in, in, in macro, not micro terms. Like what I mean is I think God's will is human flourishing. I think God's will is that we love each other and be really kind to each other and work to make sure that everybody has enough. And within that boundary, you can do pretty much anything. Um, and so are you helping other people? You're probably in God's will, right? Mm. Is it bringing you joy? Yeah, then you're probably in God's will. That's a beautiful thing. Mm. Uh, I, I, was it Martin Luther who said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and then do whatever you want? Mm. Isn't that great? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. He, he, said, he said some okay things also. Um, yeah. Okay, a I have a couple. A, just a few, though. <laughs> um, okay, so here's, uh, here's another one that we received uh, online. Uh, how do we move beyond the questioning? What's the goal of progressive Christianity? Is it to become comfortable in not knowing anything for certain? Is there a place we can get to as we are deconstructing that feels more stable again? That's a great question. Um, what is the goal? Um, I, and I know it's, it's super broad, and it's the thing I keep coming back to. It's, it, it's not a shtick. I really mean it. Uh, I think the goal is to participate in human flourishing. Um, I don't think the goal is to come up with a set of doctrines and dogmas that now, now we have the right ones because they're the progressive ones. Um, I, I think there's a tendency in humanity um, because of fear to, we, we have a, a tendency to want to err toward what I would call fundamentalism. Um, and I think all kinds of fundamentalism can be destructive. Um, I don't say that, that's not what's being asked in the question, but I'm just riffing. Um, uh, so I think that there is, so what is the goal? The goal is never certainty. Um, but I think faith is wonderful. And what I mean by faith is a lot of the things people often say is, you know, I know this, I'm certain about this. Well, actually, you, you're not and you don't. Like how many of you have ever met a being that when you walked into the room, this being had a name tag on that said, hi, I'm God. <laughs> now you may have all sorts of really valid reasons to have faith that there is a reality called God, but you don't have proof. Right, and, and even when we offer proofs, it's somebody else's coincidence. 
So I think trying to, to land on a place of certainty, I, I think progressive Christianity for me will always be once we sort of wrestle with this and we come to a place where it's sort of like, okay, I'm, I, I don't know that I know that I know, but I trust and I have faith that this maybe is how it is. I'm going to go to something else. But then there often are experiences and questions that bring us back to the thing that was settled. And so, but I also think it's okay to not constantly be sitting around going, well, now like, I'm too comfortable. I have to go just destroy some other part of my life uh, when it comes to faith. I, I think it's okay to be at a place where there is mystery. There's a lot we don't know. And that will always be true. We will, we will never. I think one of the great sins of conservative Christianity that I grew up in is that it wanted to conquer mystery and mount it on the wall and say, been there, done that. Now we have the answers. And I think what this is an invitation to is to be okay with mystery to be okay that we will continually take our best, make our best attempts to come up with what we think are the best ways to do this, the best ways to approach faith, Bible, doctrine, all of that. But it's always incomplete, and we always will leave things unfinished. Um, I will tell you, like, our, so we've, we've done a lot of sort of like tearing things down and exploring it over the last, this year. This next series, we're, we're going to explore some uh, I don't like the language of reconstruction either, by the way, because do you know what you have to do once you reconstruct? Tear it all down again. Uh, and it's just easier if you just leave it on the ground <laughs> instead of build it back up. You can find it easier, right? Um, but we're starting a series which is just essentially about something in us that wants to remain spiritually connected and what are some practices and postures that might help us do that as progressive Christians. We're going through Brian McLaren's book, Naked Spirituality. Um, we'll be doing that series on Sundays. And so I, I think that there's lots of things we can do that are generative and that are helpful, not just the tearing it down. Um, I think we need both. We, we need to, let's knock it all down on the ground and then let's explore what, is a, what does a lived faith look like when the thing that was supporting it all is now on the ground? And, and can we live... And I just remember, and I'll, I'll move on, but I just remember when I started this, when I, my, my faith really started to unravel when I was around 11 years old, so you know, five years ago, six years ago. <laughs> and um, when that happened, and it really happened in earnest in my early 20s, where I, and I got so obsessed with what I could know. Like, I, I want to know what parts of the Bible actually are historically true and what parts are metaphorically true or what parts are literal or non-literal. And I didn't sleep for like a decade just because when I would lay down at night, the questions would come. And now just being able to go, gosh, we don't know. So why am I spending my time wrestling with this when I should be asking what they mean anyway? Um, and so being able to just approach it from that space, I think is really helpful too. Like, did it happen? Did it not happen? Who knows? But I can ask this question, I think, and get to some sort of fruitful place, which is what does it mean? And what is the claim it's making? Or what is the invitation it's extending on? Um, so I hope, I hope we're doing that, and we're definitely going to be doing more of it as we lean through the rest mm. of the year. Good. Uh, anyone brave enough now uh, in the room? Anybody have a question? No one over here. Oh, yeah. Are you asking, uh, what was the last part? You're talking, about, you're talking about hell? Hell. So do I think hell, I've said hell doesn't exist, but do I believe that it's metaphor? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, 
I was in the grocery store the other night, and they, there were tons of people, and they had one checkout open. I was like, nope, I was wrong. This might be hell. Um, because the line is long, and they turn the temperature up, and it's just miserable in there. Look, um, the, the reason I don't believe hell's a real place, literally, like there, there was a place under the earth because there really isn't a thing called under the earth, right? I mean, there's the earth's core. You don't want to mess with it. Um, the reason I don't believe that is because nobody in our tradition believed that until the, around the first century. So it wasn't a big part of the puzzle. Um, and I honestly think when Jesus uses the language, by the way, did you know in the Gospels, how many of you have heard it said, Jesus talked about hell more than anything else he talked about? How many heard that before? So we got to talk about it because Jesus, here, here's the funny thing. Jesus never once said the word hell because the word didn't exist. Jesus said the word in Greek, and he said an Aramaic version, Jesus wouldn't have spoken Greek, but in the New Testament, it's the word Gehenna, which is connected to a Hebrew word, which means the Valley of Hinnom, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. It was an actual geographic spot, a valley, that in the era of the Jewish kings, it was a place where it's believed they practiced child sacrifice to a deity named Molech. And it, it takes on this, so when this is happening, you're killing, you're offering your firstborn, which was a completely, completely banned. The idea of child sacrifice was banned in the Jewish tradition. And so people are doing this thing there that is just absolutely horrible. And it takes on, and, and it takes on this sort of bigger meaning, right? And so by Jesus' day, some people say, some people disagree, but some people say it was actually a garbage dump, right? Where you would have smoldering trash all the time. And so it takes on this imagery that ended up in the Middle Ages being blown up into this idea of hell. I think what Jesus is actually doing when he does that is he's not talking about going to a place when you die. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Remember, all of the gospels were written, Mark around the time of, and all of the rest of them for sure after, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans because the Jewish people uh, rebelled violently and Rome came in and burned the city down and tore the temple down. I think when Jesus warns about hell, he's not talking about when you die in the future, God will send you to this place of judgment. I think what he's saying is if we don't learn another way besides picking up swords and in our context, guns and bombs, this whole place is going to become like that. This whole place is going to be leveled and it's going to be accursed and we're, we're all going to be in really big trouble. I don't think Jesus was ever threatening somebody with afterlife punishment. I think he was warning them about the very real life, in this life consequences of choosing violence over pursuing peace. Um, we have not learned that message. We have not learned that message as a species. And we're coming up with more creative ways to turn everything into Gehenna. And actually on my, on my blog, I wrote an article last year maybe, um, and I think the title of it was, Hell, hell doesn't exist, but it is real. And what I was talking about is hell exists all around us in this world. There are people who don't have enough food to eat. There are people who are being um, uh, persecuted and harmed. There are people suffering. And it's not hells of God's making, it's hells that we're creating. And the good news is, if we create it, we can uncreate it. Um, and so I think, I think using hell as a carrot to threaten people into um, falling into line theologically is really kind of a terrible thing to do. It's, it's psychologically damaging. But talking about the ways we're creating that reality in this world, that, that's something we can do something about. And that's a call to action that might actually change things. Does that help? Awesome. Mm.
Great question. Um, here's another question for our, from our beloved online community. Um, how can we know the Bible is true after it's been translated so many times dependent on political and social pressures of, of their time? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends on what you mean by true. Um, the Bible that you hold in your... Well, never mind. I was speaking like I was in the late 90s. The Bible you have in your lap now, um, the Bible that maybe is on your phone or whatever that you may have read before, um, that has been translated and translated and translated. Um, and depends on... Let me give you an example of how translators do a thing. Um, most scholars would say the book of Acts was written anywhere between the late 80s to the 110s. So Luke and Acts as a combo could be a really late text. And in the book of Acts, it tells the story of Paul's conversion, right? Where he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus appears and he's knocked off his horse and, and he converts on the spot. Um, Paul doesn't ever say that. Paul's genuine letters were written in the 50s. Um, and in the 50s, Paul gives us one little bit about his, and it wasn't even a convert, he, he didn't leave Judaism. That's the misnomer, right? Paul did not leave the Jewish faith. He became a Jewish Jesus person. Um, in Paul's letter in Galatians, he says that his experience was like this. I was a persecutor of the church, but God was pleased to reveal his son to me. Only that's not what he says. And there will be a, if you read a Bible, there will be a little asterisk next to, to me. And in the note, it'll say, actually in Greek, it says in me. Now here's the difference. What Paul seems to be saying is whatever his experience was, it happened internally. But the book of Acts says he saw a literal vision, and translators are trying to make Paul's own words gel with the book of Acts, so they change the word and then put a footnote like, yeah, that's not the word. Translations are interpretations. That's why it's important to research them and know kind of what the bias, everyone will have a bias of some sort. Um, uh, I like the New Revised Standard Version. They just updated it. It's the NRSV UE, because they're trying to put as many letters on it as they possibly can by the time it's all said and done. Um, that's what scholars generally use. I uh, like the Common English Bible for a regular kind of just reading. Um, I, I disagree with some of the ways they translate. I, I can't stand the way they did the Beatitudes, but nobody asked. And then, um, I mean, the reality is we're dealing with copies of copies of copies. I grew up Southern Baptist in our church beliefs. It said, we believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible word of God in its original manuscripts. Guess how many of those we have? None. Like you're building the entire doctrine on something that no longer exists. So why bother? And you want to exclude people because of it. Um, and so we don't have those. We have fragments from the second century. We, like I think our first full Bible is much later than that. Um, you can, I mean, there, scholars do a pretty good job at being able to show history of translation. Um, and so you can begin to see what decisions are being made. Is the Bible... I just don't know what true means. Uh, if you mean, is everything in the Bible factually true? Actually, everything happened that says it happened. If it says something about the universe, it's actually true. Well, gosh, no. Gosh, no. They, they believe that the earth was supported by pillars. We figured that out. Um, I don't think we should hold it against them. It's not like, well, they were just being deceptive. No, they had not had the benefit of somebody going out there, taking a picture and going, huh, it actually is round. <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and so, is the Bible, can it be helpful? Yeah, absolutely. Is, is there a tradition that we can follow that, yeah, yeah, we kind of know kinda maybe what it says. There are discrepancies here and there, but, um, 
you know, I, I, I love the, I, I'll tell you all the time, I'm not telling you if the Bible has harmed you and you just are done with it, that you shouldn't be done. Maybe you very well should be. But I will tell you that my hope, that what my work in the world is, is to help people who have had the Bible used on them as a weapon. They have grief around losing it. And they want to be able to come back to it in a way that is healing. That I can do something with, and I'm happy to. So um, is the Bible true-ish? Depends on what the word true means. It's <laughs> good. Um, yes. Yeah, go for it. Hey, how do you approach, uh, kind of piggybacking on Adam, how do you approach your time in the scriptures, like as far as Yeah, so the question is, how do you approach then the Bible when you're preparing to do this, when you're studying, when you're analyzing, yeah. how do you approach it? Yeah. So I try to, I try to do two, two different approaches. Uh, I'll be honest, it's hard because my, my brain can't unsee what I've seen, right? So when I, when, sometimes I'll be reading a passage uh, just for, and it's going to sound strange maybe, but just for enjoyment, and I'll have a question about it, and I'll make a note about the question and then go back and dig into it later. I do think for me there's a benefit in just being able to um, read, read the text pretty non-critically and just say, what, my, what might be here? What might this, if I just let my imagination run wild in the text and I don't try to, to parse it all out, is there any benefit to it? I actually think there is. It's just hard for me to be able to completely switch off the other side to do that. Um, but I think that's okay. You know, here's the problem. When people read the Bible that way, sort of like devotionally, maybe, right, just to get something out of it, and then they decide that what they just did and what they got out of it is what everybody should get out of it, and they start using it to beat people up, that's a problem. That's a real problem. But if somebody reads it and goes, oh, that was great. I'm glad I read that this morning. It's going to change my whole day. As long as it's changing it for the better and not making you a more hateful person, I think that's a fantastic, fantastic approach. Mm. I think we had one right here too. Oh, sure. And then maybe one more after that because we're running out. Yes. Yep. So I'm the first speaker. So Hi. It's been said before, sorry to repeat it, but I love what was said about uh, reclaiming the word Christianity. I thought that was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, my question is, what's like your ideal like model relationship between someone uh, like a progressive Christian? and someone of a different religion? Is it to evangelize? Is it just mm -hmm. to show your relationship with God through how you act towards them? I'm just curious what you would say a model relationship. Yeah. So the question is, um, as a progressive Christian, what would be a model um, or a great example of uh, relating as a progressive Christian to folks of other faith traditions, of other religions? Is it to evangelize? Is it just to simply share your experience? It's a great question. It's a great question. Uh, I'd recommend a book too. Uh, Brian McLaren wrote a book, Why Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Crossed the Road. Um, and it's about interfaith relationships. And, and in the book, what Brian talks, and he actually did a sermon for us during the pandemic on that. So if you go to our YouTube page and look back in 2020-ish, 2021, you might be able to find it. Um, but he talks about how there's sort of this perception, you either have a strong faith that's hostile to outsiders or kind of a weak faith that's really benevolent to outsiders. And his whole goal in the book is, how do you have a strong faith that is benevolent? Um, so I'm not a fan of proselytizing. I'm not a fan of going out and trying to convince everybody to become a Christian. Here's why. Um, some of them don't need to be, because they're fine. They're, they're in their own tradition, or they have no tradition, or they're a humanist, or an atheist, or agnostic, and they don't need me to come and make them like me. 
Um, I, I think we have misunderstood the Great Commission this entire time. Um, because here's what I think actually is going on. If you follow the arc of Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus has a light bulb moment in chapter 15 when a woman who's not Jewish professes great faith. And Jesus actually says something really harsh and mean to her before that. And after, he calls her a dog. And after she comes back and says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table, Jesus is like, wow, did not know that was possible for that kind of faith to exist outside of us. And so he immediately goes and starts healing Gentiles. He immediately goes and starts including them. And then at the end of the gospel, he's with his disciples on a mountain after the resurrection. And he says to them, all right, go into the world. And as you go into the world, I want you to make disciples of all nations. Here's what I don't think he's saying. Go colonize the world and use it as an excuse to do white supremacist terror on everybody around the world. Because that's how it's been used. The Great Commission has been a party to white supremacist terror all around the globe. Here's what I think he meant. You're going to go move about the world. You're going to bump into people who aren't like you. They eat different foods. They practice different things. They're going to want to join this movement. Do not exclude anyone. If somebody wants to be in, they're in. Last week, somebody asked me, how do, we, how do I become a member of Grace Point? Like, you want to be a member of Grace Point? Yeah. Like, You're in. <laughs> Great. We take the Great Commission seriously at Grace Point. If you want in, you're in. Um, and so I think we've used that as a, listen, is it, it's beautiful to share faith. I love when I have an opportunity to share what my faith means to me to somebody. But I also love being able to close my mouth and listen to them share their faith with me and not in a sense of hostility, but in a sense of I'm learning. Every time I talk with a person of another religious tradition, I have a deeper respect and appreciation for theirs and a deeper admiration for my own. It is not a contest and it's not about hostility. And just to be honest with you, I find that often I have way more in common with progressive Muslim and Jews than I do with conservative Christians because we're coming from the same place in the sense of we believe that this thing is ever expanding and that it's leading us to be towards human flourishing and to be more kind to each other. And I feel like when I sit down with a Jewish person who shares that lens, um, we have so much more in common. Mm. So, um, yeah, I remember being in youth group in the 90s and they would drop us off at the church, from the church, they would load us into a van and drop us off at the mall to go evangelize people. And it always made me uncomfortable and I would go to the arcade. Um, <laughs> because even then, I knew this is weird. I'm going up to a stranger going, hey, do you know what's gonna happen if you die tonight? <laughs> Why, is this a threat? <laughs> are you like, are you gonna make that happen for me? Like. It's just, it's, just, it's just strange. I think most of the people who do it are well-meaning. Like, they literally believe if they don't go get this person to assent to some doctrine about Jesus, this person will go to hell forever. Um, but they also, some people believe that if, no, if you never have heard about Jesus, you won't go to hell. And I'm like, why are you telling anyone? <laughs> just keep it a secret. If you tell people, they're on the hook for it. It's just terrible. Like, if I don't tell you this, you're fine, but now I'm telling you and it's curtains. And, I, you know, all the money that has been spent on evangelism could have been gone to feed the hungry, which I think Jesus would have been a lot more into than, than the rest. Uh, do we have time for one more? Um, one more. As long as okay. it's... Yeah. Uh-oh, as long as it's what? Because I have a question. Oh, let's just see what happens. Okay, well, no, I, and I think this is a really important question, and it came from the online community, and it's something that we talk internally a lot about, but I would just love to have you... Um, speak to it, uh, and then we can 
we can wrap up. Um, Grace Point has a lot of diversity in some areas, but it seems like cultural or racial diversity is more limited. And can you speak to that? Yeah, um, and I, th- I think and hope that we're improving in that area. We've, it's been a focus. It's been something we've talked about a lot, something we've tried to engage and, and do better with. Um, the truth is that, that progressive Christian spaces are historically really, really white. Mm. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of them being that it's a, it's a bunch of white people doing a bunch of white people things and approaching it from that lens. And so I think for us, one of the ways we've tried to approach that, one of the ways I've personally tried to broaden the scope and the lens with which I read is I try to make sure I'm engaging with authors and speakers and pastors and having people who I'm become, come, into, come into here, but also I invite into my life to help me understand my, the problem with my lenses. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we've, we've grown so much in this area in the last three years, even with COVID happening. And it's a commitment our leadership has made. We're going to continually be into these, having these conversations, learning and growing, because we want everybody to feel at home in this space. Um, and if somebody doesn't feel at home in this space, that means we have a lot of work to do, and we're here for it, and we're committed to it. Um, and that's, that's something we actually feel really, really passionate about. I don't want to stop now, though. All right, I think we should probably wait, stop. Wait, here, yeah. we can stop with this. Do you, uh, any, We're going to keep doing this. Any, any, any thoughts on a, a What About book? A question came from the online community. Oh, I, you know, maybe. It would have to be the book you never stop writing. If somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, I think everything that's ever written, a sermon that's preached, a book that's written, there should be a disclaimer in it that says, you know, you remember, is it Mission Impossible where the, they, they, they give them the message and they're like, it's going to self-destruct in five seconds? <laughs> Every book should come with a, this book is dated. If you pick this up in five years from publication, it's going to have some, it's going to have some problems because hopefully the author kept learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm in the process of writing my first book now. Uh, and um, th- thanks. That means you have to buy it. Um, and the fun thing is, I know that in two years, I'll really wish I could take another crack at it. And who knows? We'll see. Good. Hey, everybody, thank you so much. Thanks for the great questions. We love you. You're incredible community.